Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science inside podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the Personal Science Insights podcast. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Julie Fratton-Tony. Um, she is a cognitive neuroscientist at the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas in Dallas and the head of operations at the Brain Health Project. Julie, Dr. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. We're going to talk about how the brain um, affects our thinking. And uh, between you and me, when I talk to brain experts and neuroscientists, it's my absolute favorite kind of episode. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Sure. Well, I am have always been passionate about health in general and fell in love with the idea of brain health and really optimizing brain performance when I started working on my PhD, actually. Um, and so I was fortunate to be at the Center for Brain Health, which is where I work now, and to really learn from some minds that were just thinking about the brain in different ways and really a proactive and preventative stance. Um, much of what we see in research is um, really focused on injury and disease or kind of early detection. Um, and so this is kind of a new way of thinking about the brain to really see that um, there's so much that we've learned in the last several decades, um, truly major advances when it comes to understanding our own brain. And um, so much of that is helpful and can help us um, really to lead a better quality life, um, to be able to to do more, enjoy more, and um, but just a lot of us don't know how or what to do. And so um, my uh, area of passion and expertise is taking really behavioral science and leveraging that to make neuroscience approachable and accessible and to create tools to help people um, on their journey for building a better brain. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, I'm really like, we're going to be talking a lot about that today and, and, and how um, the brain kind of like how we think and I guess the deeper kind of, we're going to go really deep into a lot of those things as we were talking earlier and you were saying there's so many different ways to interpret thinking and how thinking works and how the brain goes through those processes. Um, but before we kind of get into that, uh, we have a segment called, have you met Dr. Julie Frattentoni? Um, uh, where I ask you a few really quick questions, um, and they're very simple and there's no wrong answer. So are you ready? Are you ready to answer them? Yes. Fantastic. Um, what is your favorite book? Ooh, a favorite book. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but I grew up with the Harry Potter books and have read them all multiple times. And so that's, I don't that is for sure a favorite. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've, I'm the same. I've read Harry Potter so many times growing up, watched the movies. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> um, what about, um, a movie, a favorite movie? A movie that I quote a lot. I don't know if it's my favorite movie, but um, I don't know if you've seen Office Space. It's a, it's old. Oh, no, <laughs> um, I haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah, 
Or another one that I love is Slumdog Millionaire. That was more oh, like yeah. an Indian film, but it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one for sure. Um, what about a podcast that you've been listening to lately? I listen to, I go through phases where I get really into certain podcasts and then I kind of get over it. Um, so in, in a variety of topics, I really liked for a bit, um, I mean, How I Built This is Classic, um, 99% Invisible, just about the hidden design in a lot of things. Um, I love the Bible Project podcast. Um, Cautionary Tales is another one. And then of course, Huberman Lab when it comes to neuroscience. Yeah, absolutely. Human Human Lab, I think it's um, uh, referenced a lot um, in, in this particular segment by other guests. So that's pretty cool. Um, what is a famous role model that you've looked up to growing up? I honestly don't, I don't have a famous one. I think I've had a lot of people in my life that I've looked up to for different reasons. Um, but I think it's hard to, even especially people that are famous that you don't know them because you really don't know, you know, what it really takes. You don't see all of kind of the gritty behind the scenes. I mean, more so now, I guess, with social media and there's nothing, nothing's private. But um, yeah, I don't, there wasn't any particular person that I was like, oh, I want to be like them. I mean, maybe in certain, maybe in some small ways, but yeah, yeah no one really sure. comes to mind. For sure. For sure. Um, do you have, what about a kind of personal role model in that case? Um, that doesn't have to be famous. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that I work with now that I love learning from, um, a lot of our, like our CEO and our, um, executive team. Um, they just, I think the things that I, really admire about them is just the ability to be incredibly visionary, um, but then also to be incredibly strategic. And I think that's a tough balance to strike and um, really learning how to motivate a team and how to take your ideas and, and turn them into real things that people can use. Um, that's so interesting to me. So um, I'm fortunate to have some really awesome mentors. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what about the last course that you completed? Um, the most recent course I did was a behavior design boot camp through Irrational Labs. It was really interesting. So, okay. Okay. What, what did that what did that entail? Yeah, it was really about it was specifically for healthcare or healthcare professionals and really helping um, to understand how a product or a website or an app or whatever it is that you're building um, how to tailor that to reduce friction, to help people, whether that's make behavior changes specifically related to their health, um, to adopt healthier habits, to just make better choices, to really how do you support them within their own goals, right? Um, and how do you set up and design products or technology to support that? So that was very, very interesting. That's really cool. So uh, now that that segment's over, we've gotten to know you um, and we might move on um, to our kind of major topic for today, um, which is about the brain and thinking and all of that nitty gritty. I wanted to start off really broadly. Um, our show is about personal development. So I wanted to ask you how you define personal development. Ooh, I feel like personal development to me is just incremental improvement. So just kind of being con continuously open to learning. Um, and yeah, kind of every day, what's one little thing that I could tweak or one, one degree, um, 1% that I can improve upon and, um, and knowing that, and this is similar to brain health. We say this a lot that 
there is no ceiling. So truly, um, there is no end to how much you can continue to improve your brain or your life or whatever it is that you're working on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's pretty cool. I mean, the idea that um, there's no ceiling um, can be pretty daunting to a certain extent, but it also means that if you're kind of just making incremental changes every single day, um, it's okay. Like you can continue to do it just for the love of improving. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, I think it can, you're right. It can go, it can be encouraging in that it's like, oh, like, you know, there's never, there's never a point where you're like, I'm good. Like, I don't need to work on that anymore. Um, <laughs> so for anyone that feels like, oh yeah, I've really reached my peak. It's like, no, there's always, um, I guess a little bit higher that you could climb. Um, but then also to know that it's because there is room for continual improvement, that there's no, like, there's no race. It's kind of like, it's just a lifelong, more of a marathon mentality. And, um, and I think that that feels more manageable of just like, okay, it's just small changes every day. It's not like climbing a mountain every single day. Yeah. And it's, it's also like, there's no, there's no perfect either when there's no ceiling, like there's kind of no one set goal that everyone's trying to meet. Everyone kind of, like you said, is running their own race at their own pace. Yeah. 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 Uh, what are the challenges with personal development you find? I think people can just get in their own way, to be honest. I think that um, there's a lot of, you know, labels that we take on or kind of boxes that we put ourselves in um, that would even prevent us from trying or kind of to our, your earlier point to think that there is a ceiling on something or that this is the best I can get or I just am given what I've got, like this is my IQ or this was the type of student that I was. And so I'm only ever going to be able to be this level of, you know, whatever it is. And so I think, um, yeah, I think that can be really damaging, just kind of early scripts, early labels that people put on us as children, maybe. And then we kind of um, ingrain those or without even realizing it, just kind of limit ourselves in that way. So I think that can be a huge challenge. And then I think another one, um, is sort of just having um, having a good support system or kind of accountability or just team around you that's going to reinforce what you learn. Because even if you learn something, if you learn a new way to do something that's, you know, maybe better, but the rest of <laughs> the, the people you're surrounded by are not on board with that or don't have that same understanding, um, it's hard to make change. So I think it kind of, that can be another one that's sort of out of your control. Yep, that's true. There's a lot of, I guess, external factors that are beyond your control um, around that as well. Um, how do you define thinking? It's a great question. I mean, so there's a lot going on um, when it comes to, say, the neurophysiological um, action of what's happening, right? You're having basically neurons are firing and um, by fire, I mean, they're sending chemical and electrical signals to one another um, to communicate. Um, and so thoughts at kind of a bigger level, we have sort of thought patterns, um, but there's also sorts of different types of thoughts, right? We can be thinking, um, there's sort of thinking thoughts, there's intuitive thoughts or emotions, there's um, active, engaged, problem-solving type thinking, there's mind-wandering. So. Um, it's hard to define, I guess, just one <laughs> type, um, but I think really it's um, to give another, 
to introduce another term, um, humans have the unique ability to actually think about their thinking. So, you know, we talk about um, if you, for anyone listening, if you've done any sort of mindfulness app, um, you know that they ask you to kind of sit back and observe your thoughts, like notice what thoughts are popping up, kind of watch them float by. And so that ability to observe our own thoughts or to be aware of what we're thinking is called metacognition. Um, and so that's another type of thinking. Okay. Can you, can you run me through, and I'm aware that this might turn into, this might be a can of worms. Can you run me through all of the different kinds of thinking <laughs> that we are capable <laughs> of, um, or at least some of kind of the mo the main ones. Um, and I'd love to get into metacognition more as well. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, I think I'd, I kind of just rattled off off the top of my head, just different, different types of thinking. I don't, there may be, um, yeah, I think it just depends like what you're, what you're interested in or how you want to direct that. So there's more automatic thoughts that are kind of, um, people would say your, your reptilian brain or your limbic system and that's sort of just reactions, right? So that's people, we may say that's more just, um, reactionary. It's actually not thinking. Um, so at a very deep level, and then you have really, um, conscious, thoughts that you are in control of. And so that's going to involve more of your frontal lobe um, or prefrontal cortex, um, those frontal networks that really drive kind of that top down ability to really regulate and choose your thoughts and observe them. Um, so I think when we're talking about a lot of these more executive functions like organization, planning, judgment, decision-making, um, those are all driven um, and really governed by your frontal lobe. We call that kind of the CEO of the brain. Um, and so when we get into this, we use the term sometimes higher order thinking or deeper level thinking. Um, these, are these are largely frontal lobe activities. And so that's an area that can actually be trained and strengthened. I don't know if a lot of people realize that, um, that those are, those are not just things that you're good at or you're kind of born with, um, but really that is something that with um, strategy-based training, you can actually enhance. Absolutely. I, I mean, when you were talking about like executive function, that was a familiar term to me because um, I'm currently like I'm dealing with ADHD. Um, so for me, my executive function is not quite fully there or it's not kind of working uh, I guess the same level as what is expected of, of people my age. So, um, yeah, that's really, it, it, it does feel very true to me though, that it's something you can develop because even though it might not be something that I'm naturally good at, I, you still develop strategies. You can still kind of work around that and figure out how to set yourself up and make sure that executive function is still going. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Um, how, I guess, how early do we develop those thinking skills? Um, and, and obviously there's various different types of thinking. Um, and I'm assuming a lot of them start at different stages in our lives. Sure. So specifically when it comes to these executive function or frontal lobe function skills that we were just talking about, um, I'll side note and say your frontal lobe actually doesn't finish developing until really in your 20s, um, mid to later 20s. And there's not, people say 25 a lot. There's no magic age with 25. It kind of, it, there's so much variability. Um, but yeah, that's something. So 
um, teenagers do not have a fully developed frontal lobe. And so that's why you see a lot of very risky behaviors, a lot of lack of judgment, poor decision making, because those um, those frontal lobes and those networks are not fully developed. Um, and so the joke is that um, rental car companies figured this out before neuroscientists did, because you have to be 25 to able to rent a car, at least in the U.S. Um, and so because they know that there is less car accidents once you're 25, because you have those better judgment and, and processing skills. Um, so, yeah, this development is, you know, the development of the brain continues well, well into your 20s. Um, and then actually, sadly, the frontal lobe is the first part of the brain that we start to see decline in, and that's around age 40. So when we're talking about peak brain years of fully developed brain, that's a very small window. And a big part of our mission at the Center for Brain Health is actually to extend those peak brain years, that there's no reason that decline should start around 40, especially since we're now living to be 80 or 100, right? I think babies born today are likely to live to 100. And so we that's that's less than half of your life right with peak brain years and so we really need to be become proactive about this to understand that so i think to your original question you know those skills are um coming online and then um i'm i my work has mainly focused on adults um and so children and and child brain development is a whole other can of worms and thinking about learning language and motor skills and all these other things um there's a ton but specifically kind of this ability to really reflect and engage in these executive function skills, um, that really, that control is really developed, um, later. That's crazy that like the frontal lobe, essentially, I know neither of them are magic numbers, but 25 to 40 is only 15 years. That's not a very long time at all. No, <laughs> we've got to change that <laughs> and we can. And I think that's not, that's not a statistic that we need to accept. That's one that we can, um, we can be in control of for our own selves. So how, how do we change that? And I guess before I kind of ask that wider question, I want to know like what is happening in the frontal lobe that affects the way we think and, and execute those functions? Yeah. So your frontal lobe has the, the largest number of connections dispersed throughout the rest of the brain. And so when you think about um, really any function that you do, it's very rare that it's going to just be one isolated region of the brain that's responsible for that, right? So we're thinking about a lot of networks, a lot of um, communication across different regions and that synchrony and that timing is really important. And so kind of imagining the frontal lobe, like I said, as the CEO or sort of the conductor of that and helping um, kind of orchestrate uh, just a lot of a lot of complex activity. Um, and so when it comes to what can you do for, you know, how can we, how can we affect these things? It's to really understand that everything you do every single day is shaping your brain. Um, it's strengthening certain connections and weakening others. You know, there's skills, you know, if you played an instrument in elementary school or growing up and you haven't touched it since, or you, you know, you took piano lessons when you were six, like, and you, you know, it's like, and you've forgotten, right? Those are connections that were weakened and pruned because you're no longer using them. Um, and then if you start learning a new skill, like you mentioned, taking a new course or, um, you know, trying something new, um, we're going to be strengthening different pathways, but it's not even just um, as big as learning a skill, it, it's as small as a habit of every morning stepping outside or, you know, taking a, a panoramic view or getting morning sun or, you know, it's kind of like all these little things um, 
working nonstop, not taking breaks, sitting all day, those are also going to be affecting um, your brain and shaping it. So to really understand that the brain you have is a brain that you've built based on how you've used it. Um, and you can change, you can re-architect your brain um, if you choose to change your behaviors and your daily habits. It's kind of like the brain is a muscle almost. It's not really a muscle technically, <laughs> but it almost works that way, the way you're describing it. Yeah, it definitely, um, in the sense, it's kind of like a use it or lose it sort of thing. So if you're not exercising a muscle, it is going to become weak. Um, but the cool thing and the biggest difference with the brain, of course, is just the infinite capacity um, to change and really to adapt to the environment. So it's like, you know, um, you hear a lot now about epigenetics and this idea that, um, you know, if you think about the way that we're born, we're born, um, our brains, basically our DNA does not contain enough information for us to just develop into a fully functioning human, right? It requires a lot of care, a lot of nurturing, a lot of social interaction to be taught these things. Um, we don't have just all that encoded the way that like plants and animals do, right? That they can just, they instinctively know what they need to do. Humans are not that way. And th that's, that may seem, um, like a downside, but it's actually an upside in that our brains then allow us to adapt to any environment we're in. So it says, okay, you're in this type of environment, these genes turn on, you're in this type of environment, these genes turn off, like we need these, we don't need these. So it makes us incredibly adaptable, um, which is really neat because it means that no matter what phase of your life you're in or what you're going through, that your brain has that ability to really kind of change in real time, um, depending on what you're facing or what you're working with, where that can become an issue is if say you're, you know, you're in, um, you have, let's say unprocessed trauma, or you have kind of, you're in a, in a really toxic environment where it's really negative and you're really, you know what I mean? Then that's where that can become really unhealthy or there's chronic stress, things that are undealt with, and that's not helpful. But knowing that as soon as you kind of get out of that environment, like if you've heard the quote, um, like you can't heal in the environment that it happened in sort of thing. So like knowing that, you know, if you want to, if you want to create change, you really have to, um, you've got to change a lot of things. And so it is possible, but it is definitely work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I guess with all of that in mind, um, how do, what, what, how do we enhance our brain health in general? What are some things that we can do that are good for our brain? Absolutely. So, um, I, I always say this, it's, it's not super exciting. There's really basic things that everyone kind of already knows, but no one really wants to do. Um, and so this is things like sleeping eight hours a night, um, you know, like taking breaks, um, from technology, getting out in nature, moving your body, not being, not sitting all day long. Um, you know, not just taking the convenient fast route when it comes to food, but really cooking meals and sitting down and not eating in front of screens, but really interacting with people for those meals and, you know, getting proper nutrients. So kind of like sleep exercise, um, nutrition, you know, all managing stress is a really big one, but then some of the lesser known ones. Um, so those are kind of, I would say foundational in that if you're not doing, if you don't have those basics, then it's going to be really hard to do anything else. But if you're kind of like, okay, I'm sort of managing those, um, as best I can, cause there's no perfect, right. Um, then what does it look like to really, um, really strengthen or hone in on some specific cognitive functions? Um, or I want to improve my thinking, right? I want to be a better problem solver, better decision maker. I want to um, be better at planning. 
Um, so for that, then that comes to how you use your brain every day. So there's kind of like, um, you know, the aspect of if you're not getting enough sleep and you're sleep deprived, then all systems are going to be functioning lower. But if you're able to get enough sleep and get, you know, proper hydration and those things that you need, um, then you can really start to think about, okay, how, how am I thinking? How am I approaching my day? Am I, um, am I taking on the right level of challenge? That's really important. So making sure that, um, you know, you're not just sort of stagnant. And when I mentioned that age of 40 and seeing decline, um, really around age 40 is when a lot of folks stop learning. Um, they're kind of at a comfortable point in their career. They're no longer taking on challenges. They sort of start to go on autopilot. And so autopilot is probably one of the biggest um, enemies of keeping the brain healthy because the brain needs challenge. It needs novelty. Um, so that's just one example. Another one is practicing flexible thinking. Like I think we a lot of times get into, you know, I've been doing this and this is how it works and this is the one right way, but really continuing to be open, um, pushing ourselves to mul uh, generate multiple solutions or see things from other people's perspectives um, is a big one. So yeah, there's a lot of, you could go into a whole lot more ways specifically, um, within your day-to-day -day of how you just manage and process information even, um, how you kind of filter and focus. I know you mentioned um, ADD and um, a lot of people I think are dealing with um, just information overload and feeling like, how do I, you know, filter what is important because there's so much coming at me. Um, and so, you know, it, deploying strategies around that um, so that you're not just drinking from a fire hose or getting burnt out. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's so much I feel like that people can do, but just those basics of, you know, actually getting eight hours of sleep, um, eating healthy, um, taking a walk <laughs> at least once a day, um, is, is makes a world of difference. I think, um, I know for me, um, I actually like this year set, um, a habit for myself to get eight hours of sleep a day and make sure that I was sleeping and waking up at the same time every day. Doesn't always check out. I know the past week has been a bit bit rough. Um, but I have noticed now the huge difference between days where I get those eight hours and days where I'm sleeping a little, even just like six, um, yeah. it, it makes just such a world of difference. I'm so glad that you've been able to experience the benefit. And then it sort of is self-reinforcing because then you're like, wow, like I can tell the difference of how I feel and how I'm able to think and do everything. And so it makes you want to prioritize that sleep. Um, I think like, also there's a lot of cultural things around people a lot of time wear it like a badge of honor of like, I can get, I got by on four hours of sleep. And it's like, that is not the long game. <laughs> no, no. Like, I want to be able to go through my day without, you know, a migraine <laughs> for the yes. entire day. Or being um, dependent on caffeine. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. For sure. I mean, I've got a coffee right now because I'm not, <laughs> I haven't had my eight hours overnight, but, um, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, well that kind of brings us to the end of, uh, the main segment for today. Uh, but we do now have our practice slash habit experiment debrief, um, where we kind of talk a little bit about, um, how we can apply everything we've learned um, and put it to some kind of practice that our audience members can take away and do for themselves. Um, so Dr. Julie, what is a practice that um, you do or you would recommend to improve yourself? Oh man, um, I think one that many people struggle with today, um, so this is gonna be a hard one to do, but if you can do it, kind of like getting your eight hours, you're gonna notice a difference. 
And that would be to limit and reduce multitasking as much as possible. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a difficult one, I think, for a lot of people (laughs) to execute. Um, So I guess my first my first question is how how do people go about doing this? (laughs) Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, the brain you have is the brain you've built. And so if you are used to constant interruptions, constant distractions or just constantly toggling back and forth between two different things, like I have this tab open and this tab and then I get pinged here on Teams and then I'm going to text this person and then it's like, If you are used to that, operating that, a lot of people don't, they say, well, that's, um, you know, I I need to have the TV on or I need to have this. And it's like, well, you've just, you've trained yourself to need that, but you're making your brain do so much extra work and you are expending so much more mental energy and it is draining your battery. Um, And so granted, this is not for all tasks all the time. This is just for those really critical tasks that you know you need to focus on, you know that you need to really get in the zone. Research has shown that it takes on average 25 minutes to get back to that place of that really deep focused state once you're interrupted. So knowing that if you can set aside and kind of be strategic and prioritize, um, we say pick your top two, you get your top two, we call them elephants for the day. And um, whatever your elephants are, block off a 45 minute chunk of uninterrupted time. So whatever that looks like, if it's put your phone on, do not disturb, if it's shut your door, if it's, you know, set up your environment to help you do that. Um, And it may not be 45 minutes right away. So to your question of how it's, it's incremental, right? So it's setting a five minute timer and saying, I'm going to work on only this for five minutes. And then you build your, your way up, right? So for that week, it's like every day I'm doing this for five minutes. And then next week it's like seven minutes and then it's 10 minutes, right? To really build that muscle to use that analogy again um and it is going to feel very hard another way that you can sort of help practice this is like when you're driving for example to like not like not turn off the radio no music no podcast not talking on the phone and just let yourself really do one thing at a time and i think at first people go a little bit crazy and they're like, I hated it. Um, I hated the silence, but then you learn to actually crave it and it's a wonderful break for your brain. Um, so I kind of am mixing in two different things of having that break, but also really um, when you can, when you are constantly overstimulated, it is really agitating. It's increasing stress and cortisol. And so to really give yourself like, okay, just this for right now, and you will be so much more productive. Um, we've seen research has shown increased number of errors and it takes you longer um, when you are multitasking. So just know that, um, and then it takes longer because you have to go back and fix those errors or you know, or you don't get to them and your work quality is just not as good. So um, yes, to get the most, uh, to be the most efficient with your time, doing one thing at a time is actually going to be the most efficient. Whereas I know a lot of people multitask because they are trying to save time, um, but you're really stressing your brain out. It was not meant to do more than one thing at once. It really, um, and you'll see this with, which is why like there's so many accidents when if you are texting and driving, or if you are even messing with the radio, it's like you cannot focus on both things at once. Um, And we do get pushback sometimes where people will say like, okay, like I'm a, I'm a pilot, right? And I've got all these different screens and buttons and dials and I've got to pay attention to all these different things. It's like, that's fine because it's all one common goal of keeping the plane in the air. So when it's all towards the same goal, that's fine. But if you're switching between like, I'm, you know, having a conversation with you and then also listening to the news that's on over here, right? That's not, it's not going to go well. 
Uh, yeah, for sure. I think um, I I, know, I definitely know a lot of people will be very disappointed to hear that they can't listen to music <laughs> while in the car. Um, but I can understand it to a certain extent because I I, I think people forget um, that driving, the amount of concentration that driving actually requires and the amount of brain power that we need. Um, I think you know, we get, we tend to be an autopilot when we're driving a car, especially if we've been doing it for quite a few years. But, um, when you almost enter an accident, you kind of wish, oh, I should have like been paying way more attention at that point. And it's usually because you just, your brain wasn't completely focused on the task. Yes. And I do, I won't, I will say driving and listening to the radio is fine or listening to music. Like it's okay. I wouldn't consider I wouldn't necessarily consider that multitasking. That was more just to support the point that we've built very busy and distracted brains that are used to having a lot going on. So that sort of feels comfortable. I would just say, yeah, I think you made the good point of that. You know, it really is a is a um, a complex cognitive task to be operating a vehicle and to do so safely. Um, that we sort of just go on autopilot for, which is pretty scary because we never, even if you're going the same route every day there, you never know what might be happening, um, with other cars on the road or people or animals anyway. So, um, so yeah, I think the point was that it wasn't, I wouldn't say that that necessarily is multitasking, but it just like, we, we are training ourselves to really build brains that kind of seek that out. And so I think even a lot of people will say like, well, I need to, I have to study and have music on. I think white noise is a little bit different if you need to drown out, like if you are in a noisy environment or if you're in a, an open co-working space or you have open office space, you know, sometimes I would say that white noise um, is going to be better than having to block out conversations um, because that's active extra work for your brain. But if that music has lyrics or anything, it's like your brain's still processing it, whether you're paying attention to it or not, um, it's still requiring those cognitive resources. That's really true. I'm not, I'm unable, like I listen to music a lot while I'm working, but I'm unable to listen to anything with music, especially if I have to focus on writing other words and, and that kind of thing. Like it, it's just going to clash and I'm going to be focusing on the music instead. Yeah, for sure. What are three good things about reducing your multitasking? So reducing your multitasking one, is going to help you, um, it's going to reduce stress in the moment of all all that going on. It's also going to um, reduce stress because you're probably going to accomplish more with your time. So you're going to be less stressed about getting things done or having that to do list kind of weigh on you. You're going to know like, okay, like I you know have made progress today that I can feel good about. So that's um, kind of two in one. Um, the other benefit is just that this is a brain healthy practice. This is something that um, when we talk about brain health as a long game or like longevity and really wanting to keep our, extend our peak brain years, right? To match our, our lifespan, um, that this is something that is going to help you um, extend those peak brain years to be working at your best longer um, so that you're not going to burn out or you're not going to, um, yeah, just, I would say that's probably reduce burnout and extend your longevity of just peak brain performance. Um, and then I think lastly, um, yeah, I think that, I think the first one kind of rolls a lot into that of just being more productive with your time, making less mistakes, you know, being able to be fully present. Um, we talk, you know, we all know that mindfulness and being present and being in the moment is really important. And so, um, there's aspects of that, that, um, allowing yourself to get into that 
deeper focused state, that type of thinking is a great exercise that keeps your frontal networks and frontal lobes healthy um, to really engage in that type of deeper thinking. Again, not all the time, but just those times when it's when it matters. Um, and so that's another great way, um, again, to be regularly engaging in that type of thinking um, for just long term brain health. Out of curiosity, and this is not quite relevant, but I do think it might help um, kind of uh, hit home the point. What does burnout do to the brain? Ooh, that's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> so there's different elements of burnout. I know like like cynicism is an element. There's kind of the emotional aspect. There's the aspect of um, of even confidence. There's, you know, there's so many different pieces of it. Um, it's actually something we're studying right now. We're really interested in in understanding um, those markers when it comes to the detriments of the brain. But I would say it's such a combination of things, I think largely emotional. Um, and some ways to combat that really are, um, you know, by not waiting until you're burned out that that's really requires a proactive strategy. And I would say a lot of at least American work, uh, work culture and kind of being like, it's the hustle and in the grind and 24 seven and you don't, you know, you don't sleep and you are putting it all. And it's like, those are things that are going to contribute to it. But knowing that taking a step back and doing something that kind of like the multitasking example, this seems like it would be less productive, but it's actually more productive. Just like taking breaks seems like it would be like, well, I'll get less done if I'm taking a break. And it's like, no, you'll actually get more done. That's going to actually help productivity. So I think, um, yeah, burnout is going to just contribute to, Brain-wise, I would say, um, yeah, I, I think there's just like so many different components of that that are affected. It's pretty widespread. Absolutely. Um, what are kind of the challenges with reducing multitasking? I know you mentioned that sometimes you do get pushback from people in certain professions um, as well. Yes, I think, um, so this would be one where if you are expected to, let's say, always be on call or you always or there's a certain expectation around um, fast response time with email or with other things, if you really can't, I, I would be surprised that, um, you know, if an employer or a supervisor, if you said, hey, I'm blocking this 45 minutes to push this particular task forward, I'm going to be unavailable for this one block or these two blocks during the day. I think generally that would be received well, um, just as long as we're having those conversations. I do think that a lot of people feel the pressure to be always available and always responsive. So it's kind of a healthy exercise of almost just setting those boundaries or setting those expectations with your colleagues or people that may require that um, that type of response. So I think that one can be really challenging for people. Another one is environment, like we talked about, like if you are say working from home or you have kids or even you're in the office and you're in an open space right just interruptions are sometimes out of your control so really setting yourself up in a place where you're like i can really <laughs> really shut the door or really you know whatever that looks like um and then the other biggest challenge is just that internal one of sometimes even when it's perfectly quiet and there's nothing pinging or ringing um I internally am thinking, oh, I should go check this or, oh, I wonder what happened to that or, oh, I, I remember I need to make a note about this, right? And so kind of um, a really great exercise that you can do is the next time you sit down to, to work on your elephant task, um, to just take a tally of every single time you get either distracted or interrupted, internal or external, just make a tally mark. 
And that just sort of builds the awareness of, wow, I got it. Like, I remember the first time I did this exercise, I was like, holy cow, I sat down for 30 minutes and I was literally had an interrupting thought. Like there was like maybe 10 (laughs) or 15. And so it's just, it's quite a lot. And then realizing, okay, what are these ones are in my control? And then um, even just that awareness of how often it's happening is really helpful. And then you can from there see, okay, what can I do about those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess with these elephant toss, I mean, <laughs> 10 to 15 times a minute, that's like once uh, every two or three minutes, essentially, that's a lot. Um, and when you think about it, like you're kind of giving yourself 30 minutes to work on one thing and you're thinking about something else every three minutes between that, it would definitely take you out. Um, how do you kind of redirect your focus when you do get interrupted? Yes. I also just want to share, there is a statistic that on average in the workplace, people are interrupted every three minutes. So that's oh, about wow. <laughs> about okay. on average. Um, that right. may have changed or that was a few years ago, I think. But um, but yeah, to refocus, um, it is, like I said, it takes a little bit of time to get yourself back into that train of thought. You sort of have to reread, okay, where was I and get back into it. Um, As far as a particular strategy to do that, I think it's probably kind of individual, but I think just um, one thing that also helps with, say, that distraction of if you did remember something or it was an internal one, it's like having the notepad next to your bed kind of thing, right? Like where it's like, okay, I'll jot it down and then I don't have to worry about it. So it's it's okay to kind of take that moment to say, okay, yes, I'm going to write this down and I'm going to say, even for me, it actually helps to say... um, I will address this or I'll block a time on my calendar later. So I'm like, okay, I know that I'll have time to do this at this time. So I don't need to spend time worrying about it and I don't need to get off task and and go chase that rabbit <laughs> trail. Um, so yeah. And then as far as getting back into the groove, um, I mean, that is such a good question. I think I haven't really thought about it because it's sort of like you just kind of have to get yourself back there. Do you have anything when you are trying to refocus yourself that you have found helpful? Um, yeah, I'm very kind of, um, so I'm the notebook kind of person and that if there's something, cause it's usually like, um, it'll usually be things that stress me out. Um, or it'll be, um, I have sometimes thoughts where I'm def it's definitely not work related because my brain is kind of just not there, like at that point. So I'll kind of just make a note to kind of just look into it later. That's kind of what I do. But I'm also, I mean, again, that's one of those things that's just fallen apart in the past few weeks because I've been sick quite a bit. So it's not, um, it's, it's, it's been hard to keep that up, but, um, I'm usually a planner kind of person anyway. So if I have things like I'll block out exactly when I'm going to do a specific thing, um, during my day. And it doesn't always work out that way because life just happens. Um, but at the very least, like I've set a time to do something and that means I can like rearrange it if need be when things happen. So having that already helps kind of reduce those thoughts. Cause it's already like, Oh, if I need to do this, well, I've already set a time to do it. If that makes sense. Um, that's kind of, I'm, yeah, I'm the, I'm the notebook at the table kind of person, I guess. Um, that's what helps me. I guess, and I think, I don't know, I'm sure this is your experience as well, but it's not like a hundred percent success rate, I think for people as well. Like things will always happen, especially when it's beyond your control. Um, and you know, if you've got, you know, I've got a dog, 
if if he needs something, if he starts like coughing, vomiting while I'm kind of focused on a task, I'm not going to continue to focus on the task. I'm going to go look after him. So things just kind of happen sometimes and you've got to let it. Yes, absolutely. I think you can have you can have your goal and you can have your plan and then being flexible and adaptable is the name of the game most of the time. But um, yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, how do you think this practice will impact someone's perception in life? You know, I think it builds, I think it builds confidence to know, to really hone your focus. I think that that's something that feels very under attack to not sound dramatic um, when it comes to just all of the use of technology and things that are really competing for our attention. And your attention is truly um, one of your most, I mean, valuable resources. It's it's a finite resource. You can only you only have so much of it, right? You can only shine that spotlight of attention on one thing at a time. So, really, um, yeah, I think the perception of knowing. I think a lot of people feel like um, out of control of like I'm just at the whim of whatever. <laughs> icon or beep or notification I'm going to get and I just have to be reactive to them. I think instead to kind of take control back and say like, no, like I can look at all these things and then I get to choose which thing I'm going to put my attention on. And I get to be strategic with that and really feel like I can make progress in the things I want to. And I'm not constantly going to be derailed because like for me, I'm a, like, I turn, like, I hate push notifications. I don't like anything that's like you get emails about, like, I'm like, none of it. Like I want, I want no sounds. Like I will go check it when I have time and when I've designated time to do that. Um, but it takes a lot of discipline and I, I have been practicing that for a while and it's still hard for me. So I don't mean to say that I figured it all out, but I will say it gives a sense of agency and empowerment of my own brain power, my own attention and focus and where I want to direct that. I think, um, yeah, just that perception of like being able to be proactive as opposed to reactive is really important. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I also like in terms of like blocking things out, I know that technology, while it can come at our detriment a lot of times when it, when we need to focus, um, is implementing stuff like focus modes and, um, that kind of thing that kind of pauses all your notifications and just allows you to concentrate on the task at hand, especially since so much of our work is on a screen anyway, it just kind of just those little things tend to help. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, based in your experience, do you have any kind of practice or habit, um, that you would maybe combine, um, with reducing multitasking that you feel would improve, um, would improve it, the kind of your, your ability to focus on your elephant tasks, for example? Sure. Um, so another one that we talk about a lot is taking brain breaks. And so, um, this couples really nicely with this because, um, kind of that idea of like, yeah, if you're going nonstop, it's, it is going to be hard to focus. And so if you are just going from meetings back to back to back or from rushing from one place to the next, um, it is really hard to remember what happened because you didn't give your brain a chance to actually consolidate it. Um, so I think taking those breaks and really, um, and so let me define actually what a brain break is because um, people might think that a brain break is 
you know, scrolling on social media or checking your email or online shopping or watching YouTube videos and none of those things are brain breaks. A true brain break is really to disengage from people and technology. So just really no incoming information, um, really just letting your brain rest. And so you can do that like by taking a walk outside, simply just turning and looking out the window. You can sit there and close your eyes. You can lay down. You can just take a walk down the hall, get a drink of water. It can be any of those things. It can look a lot of different ways. Um, but to intersperse those throughout your day and not wait until you're just completely drained at the end of the day. But we say take five, five minute breaks throughout the day. So um, yeah, just proactively scheduling those in and knowing, and especially um, before and after that elephant task, that's going to be really helpful because having that break just sort of frees up your mind, um, really helps really pop new ideas or kind of get you, get your brain primed to really focus. And then after you're done in that deep focus, then giving yourself that break to say, okay, and really, um, you know, get ready to switch gears or work on something else. It's really helpful. I'm so glad you said that because you've enabled all of the snack breaks I take <laughs> during the day. <laughs> Breaks are so important. <laughs> um, that brings us to the end of our debrief. So thank you so much for sharing that with the audience. And I'm really hoping that everyone watching, my, myself included, will kind of go on and try to reduce our multitasking um, in the future. Uh, we've now got some questions from the audience. Are you happy to answer them? Sure. Fantastic. Um, the first question is, um, what is neuroplasticity and can you improve it by thinking positive thoughts? Ooh. So neuroplasticity is simply um, the ability to for your brain to change and adapt based on how you're using it and based on your environment. Um, and I believe you can change your brain um, with your thoughts, particularly positive thoughts, and also to know that negative thoughts will also change your brain. So um, it really is up to you and your brain doesn't know the difference between positive and negative. You get to kind of teach it and decide which ones you want to focus on. Um, but yeah, anytime, kind of like we talked about a little bit earlier, um, you're going to repeat a thought pattern that is going to strengthen um, those connections and it's going to make it easier to travel that route again. So if you think of it, I like this analogy of like, if you think of like a forest and like, or if you go hiking and you can kind of see the worn path, right? And so it's like the more familiar that path is, the more people take it and the easier it is because it's become, it kind of becomes like a little worn down. Um, and so to create a new habit, like thinking a positive thought or changing the thought, you're going to have to take a different path. And it's going to be harder in the beginning because there's like a lot of bushes and things you kind of have to get through. Um, but then over time, as you do that more and more, that path will become, um, I guess, more distinct. Um, so I like to think about it that way of like, you know, strengthening and that old pathway is still there, right? But then over time, it's going to become overgrown and less used the less that it's used. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty good analogy. That does make, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how can we maintain good brain health um, as we age and like, especially after your cognitive abilities start to decline? So if you are, if you are experiencing decline, I think like mastering the basics is really important. I think that everything from, you know, gut health, microbiome, nutrition, like fully like working with a functional medicine doctor, right? Getting all those things in place, sleep, light exposure. I mean, gosh, there's being in nature. Um, there are so many things. I think um, truly the best 
way to keep your brain healthy is to start young, to start now. And so it's never too early and it's never too late. So if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm already in my 70s, that's too late. No, it's not too late. But if you're like, oh, I'm in my 20s and I don't need to worry about it, start now (laughs) because aging actually starts in your 20s. So really the best strategy is a proactive one. Um, And it's kind of, uh, you know, the top, if I were to give you kind of like, I have a top a top 10 list, um, if you will. And so it's sleeping eight hours every night, um, moving every day, some type of movement. It can be a walk. It doesn't need to be like intense Olympic athletics. It can be just any type of movement that works for you. Um, eating whole real foods, building strong community, social connection and social support is actually one of the number one protective factors when it comes to aging and especially even cognitive decline. So really having a strong social network um, and investing in those relationships. Um, Number five is managing stress. So there's many ways to do that. Mindfulness, breathing, exercise, um, sleep, you know, getting, taking breaks, Um, staying curious and never stop learning. So that goes to um, this idea that the brain continually needs novelty, new experiences. Um, You want to be a lifelong learner, be curious. It doesn't mean you have to be getting a new degree. It can be taking, you know, like learning how to play pickleball or taking a class on, you know, taking an art class, but just learning in general. Um, Aligning with your purpose is huge for brain health. So we've seen that that is um, people with purpose had actually less cognitive declines, really taking time to figure out what that is and then being able to kind of dive fully into that. Um, number eight would be take on taking on challenges. Like I said, I, understanding that right level of challenge. If you're too challenged and just stressed out, it's going to burn you out, right? But if you're not challenged enough and you're on autopilot, that's not good. So finding a sweet spot, which is different for everybody. Um, spending time outside in nature. There are so many healing benefits to that, um, but especially things like sunlight and getting that in the morning um, and even seeing the evening sun to help uh, prepare for sleep. And then the last one is enjoying life and having fun. You've got to play. You've got to do things that you enjoy and you like. Um, that is huge. And so if you're just living life feeling like I have to follow this protocol and this regimen and I need to do this checklist of things to stay healthy, um, that's stressful. And that's not that's not what we were meant for. So really, you know, having things that you really enjoy and, and love doing and um, doing those things often. Yeah, I love that. Um, always advocating, I think, for free time and, and using that free time for yourself. Uh, so, um, yeah, very, very happy to hear that on a personal level as well. Uh, final question is how do things like stress and anxiety affect our ability to make decisions? Oh, wow. So it's a great question. When we become stressed, we, you've probably heard of fight or flight, right? Or your sympathetic nervous system takes over. Um, You've got two, your nervous system, you've got sympathetic, which is fight or flight. You've got parasympathetic, um, which is the rest and digest. Um, You need both. You need a balance between two. So sympathetic or fight or flight gets a bad rap, but that actually is what helps us um, perform our best, right? It's what helps you wake up in the morning. It's, we need, we need both, but we need balance. And so um, when we are stressed or anxious, or we are in that fight or flight state, um, what's going to happen is actually your your limbic system is going to take over more emotional reactive um, system that is um, your survival mode go- kicks in. So it's really, that's why it's going to narrow down your options to fight, flight, freeze, right? So you just don't have to think too much. It's just like quickly, here's your choices. Um, 
And then it's that's going to sort of shut off access to your frontal lobes or your prefrontal cortex, um, which is what allows us to actually make better decisions and think, which is why if you've ever been really upset and you've said or done something you regretted, it's because um, your your prefrontal cortex largely went offline during that kind of <laughs> that event of of high stress. Um, and so so just know that um, when you are really upset or really stressed, that that is not the time to make a decision um, to actually give yourself a little bit of space. And if your mom ever told you, like, take a deep breath and count to 10 or whatever, like that actually is is helpful. Um, a little bit of breath work or even just some slower breaths um, can really help regulate it actually regulates in real time the amount of norepinephrine, um, which is a certain neurotransmitter that when there's too much of it, you feel anxious. And when you have more of an optimal level, you can really think more clearly. So um, if you are able to calm down, take a few breaths, um, and then you'll be able to really access your frontal lobes and utilize that that brain power to make a better decision um, or to just think more clearly is really important. So yeah, those two systems kind of, when one is engaging, it's it's protective and to help you survive. Um, but then um, that's not the time to really yeah, make any big decisions or really small decisions either, either probably. Yeah, for sure. Um, just a bit of space, uh, a bit of breath, uh, breathing and a bit of time um, can make things a lot better. Uh, but thank you. That That's the end of our audience questions. So thank you so much for answering them. Um, we now have a final segment of the episode, which is our open mic, uh, in which I let you have a mini TED talk about whatever you feel is important to address right now. Uh, did you have something in mind, Dr. Julie? Yeah. I mean, I think for anyone who really wants to be proactive about their brain, um, which I feel like everyone does, who doesn't want a healthy brain, right? Who doesn't want their brain to be healthy as they, when they're a hundred or, or even when you're 60, right? That's anything beyond 40 as we talked about. Um, but don't know where to start. Uh, we have an ongoing research study called the brain health project. And so this is a longitudinal study. It's a 10 year long study. Um, and it's all online so you can participate from anywhere. And we are, it's ongoing right now. You could go to the brainhealthproject.org to, to participate and really help contribute to the future of brain health research. Um, and in that study, you get access to online assessments, our cognitive training, teaching strategies like the ones I talked about today with multitask, not multitasking and taking brain breaks. Um, so really practical things you can do in your daily life. Um, and then there's coaching also, which is optional, like a 20 minute coaching call um, every quarter. So that is, that's a resource um, and a great way to feel like you're contributing to, to science. Um, and we are actually building the mobile app version of that that will launch later this year. Um, so you can keep an eye out for that. Um, but yeah, it's a really great resource if you're like, I want to do something but don't know what to do or I don't know what is actually science backed. Um, this is completely free because um, you're participating in a research study. Um, so that's something I'm really excited about and um, want everyone to be able to benefit from. That's so exciting. And I think uh, kind of the more information that you get from the people who use it as well, um, the more it benefits uh, the people of the future who want to learn more about their brains. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that. Um, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that app in the future for sure. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Dr. Julie. Where can our audience members find you? Sure. Um, mostly active on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Julie Fratantoni. Um, I also have a website, which is just www.drjuliefratantoni.com. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. I've learned so much today and I've had a wonderful time talking to you. 
Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. You've been listening to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can also be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kutti. Thanks for tuning in.